Welcome back to Danger Film, a special podcast about filmmakers in the Sydney Film Festival. In each episode, we'll interview a filmmaker in the festival about their film and talk about how their film constitutes dangerous filmmaking. Whether it's defying censorship or the status bro, we want to hear their take. We're your hosts, Jack Jen Atherton and Andre Shannon, and this is Danger Film. Today, we're lucky to be talking to Dr. Karen Perlman, who's a film director, writer, editor, and she's also a lecturer of screen practices and film production at Macquarie University. She's here today talking about her short film in the Sydney Film Festival called After the Facts, which explores a hidden truth that the Soviet film bros who claim to have discovered modern film editing were in fact working with female editors and taking all the credit. Classic Soviet film bros. Karen, welcome to the studio. Hello, Andre. Hello, Jack. Lovely to see you. Hi. So please tell me about your film, which is, which is about Esfir Shub. Is that how you pronounce Esfir Shub is a very good pronunciation of that uh, Soviet name. An American would probably say Esther Shub, but Esfir Shub is how she would have been known. Um, so my film, After the Facts, is a five-minute uh, compilation film. At the center of it is this woman, Esfir Shub, who was herself, she virtually invented the remix film. And although other people had been doing things where they used archival material before, what she really innovated with was the conjunction of um, new ideas about editing that were arising in the period with uh, archival films. So what she did was she put together pieces of archival film and made them say something completely different than they had originally been intended to say when they were shot. Is there something, maybe a contemporary example of something that her technique led to? Well, uh, when you see the films by films and productions by Soda Jerk, for example, they're a key, uh, brilliant exemplar of people who are making um, remix films, recycling, repurposing, and really saying something completely different with the material than it might originally have been intended to say. And how is making a compilation film different now than it was there? Wow. Well, so we're talking 1920s Soviet Union, which is a really complex and interesting point in time. Um, when you talk, when you say the word freedom, some interesting kinds of constrictions come to mind. But in in a more general sense, like globally, the 1920s was a time before rules and established methods of filmmaking uh, had taken hold around the world. Right? There wasn't necessarily you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. So in a sense, that's a great freedom. In, in Russia, um, there was, you know, we're immediately post-revolution and there's not a lot of food, not a lot of money, and not a lot of thought freedom. What Shub did in particular was take films um, that had been made, for example, like the home movies of the Tsar, so Tsar Alexander's home movies, and she takes those, and instead of making them like, oh, cute pictures of, you know, cute family and dogs playing in the garden, she makes them into images of the corrupt, the corrupt aristocracy. And that corrupt aristocracy is then juxtaposed with images of the working class, you know, sweating and laboring and being oppressed. And we suddenly see that these aristocrats are not cute. <laughs> they, are, they are slave owners, essentially. It's crazy how these films that you're talking about, to me, they make me think of the style of filmmaking that you find in pop music videos these days. And it's crazy to think that, what, a hundred years ago, Shub was editing films to rewrite the history of Russia, and a hundred years later, 
we're now using very similar editing techniques of like fast cutting to, to you know, sell music to and sell pop music. stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it it is interesting. It, it's I mean, so the the person who's usually kind of um, credited with the development of the theories around this kind of montage that we see in advertising and in and in music videos is is Eisenstein, but. Um, my argument that I'm doing research on is that this was a much more collective kind of movement that occurred. And, and um, in either case, whether it was collective or it was Eisenstein who really pioneered this form of montage, they would all have hated what it's become. So this period in film is really well-known and well-researched. Um, we're talking about a period that's roughly from 1920 to 1935 in which a group of filmmakers in the Soviet Union changed film form forever. They changed editing in particular from being something that is just gluing together the end of one shot to the beginning of the next shot they, into being an actual art. So they made editing into of a core part of the art of cinema and they came up with a lot of ideas um, that are still operating on us very strongly today about how film should work um, or could work. We have figures like Sergei Eisenstein whose film Battleship Potemkin is you know extremely well-known example. The Odessa Steps sequence is copied over and over again by filmmakers who want to make this very dynamic and surprising and extraordinary kind of uh, impact on audiences. Also, Ziga Vertov, whose um, you know, wonderful documentaries are reflexive and physical and revealing a whole idea about the world in motion all the time. Um, and th what's interesting about these, these particular filmmakers, in fact, all of the filmmakers of this era, is that while they were... Uh, innovating in montage and and theorizing the innovations of the montage and while we know their innovations from their theories they weren't actually necessarily doing the editing right the editing was actually done mostly by their wives right not not just women wives classic hitchcock move <laughs> yeah and in your film it covers so much ground in such a short amount of time because of its editing you show a lot of the footage that Shub remixed that has female workers and labour that isn't just editing. It's working in the fields, it's working sweeping snow, and it's cut together almost like a dance. And showing that this embodied labour is often where these theories are formed. Right, so, so in my research at Macquarie University, I'm working with uh, people like Professor John Sutton, who's a, a philosopher working in the Cognitive Science Department. The basic theory that underpins all of our research is this idea of distributed cognition. Somebody's got to ask me what's distributed cognition. Okay, what's distributed <laughs> cognition? Okay. Uh, oh, oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, it is a, a different way of looking at uh, the mind and saying, well, thinking isn't something that just happens in your brain and it's not just something that happens in your brain and your body it's something that happens in the conjunction and profound entanglement of your brain your body and the world and so that means for example in this three-way conversation the thinking isn't happening in any of our individual minds it's between us 
So it's an it's an entangled relationship that we have with bodies, m- brains, and tools, and the world. And the cinema. And the cinema. It's probably a really perfect research ground for this kind of concept and theory. Well, I, I think so, and I particularly think that women editors are a perfect kind of research ground because what you have is people who are on the ground holding holding the tools, making literally thousands of decisions, chunking them down, discarding this and moving on to that in in a way that we that is so expert that we might be tempted to call it intuitive or not to recognize the thought that's going on behind it and the expertise that's going on behind it. But through their expert physical actions with the fi- holding the film, you know, as Esfir Shub says, ideas arise from holding film in your hands. They're the ones holding the film in their hands. I don't think anybody, you know, in, well, there are a few people in Australia who, who know this name I'm about to say, but Pira Atasheva, ever heard of her? No. Did you even know that Eisenstein was married? I'm not surprised, but no. Right? Well, he's, um, it was a very unconventional marriage. They didn't live together. At, I don't know, you know, there's all kinds of speculation about that that I'm not expert enough to go into, but um, she was his editor. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> there you go. Right? This is some real hot 1920s goss right here. And hot 1920s Russian goss. We're really digging deep. I don't think anyone's getting this kind of information <laughs> right now in Australia. We're so lucky to be here with Karen. <laughs> it's a, it's out there. The information is available. So I'm, I'm not claiming original research here when I say that Pira Atasheva was Eisenstein's wife. I am claiming, however, that we should possibly look at what it is that she did that is so significant to, I mean, you can't become those kind of great men all by yourself. And there's this, you know, terrible old cliche of behind every great man is a good woman, right? I don't know what I'm allowed to say on radio, <laughs> but really, fuck that. No. <laughs> you know, it's just not on. It's just not on. It's, you know, side by side, side by side. I remember the first time we met, I made that joke to you where I said, behind every great man is a um, surprise woman. And you're like, behind every great man is an oppressed woman! Right? <laughs> and I feel like that's what your film, After the Facts, is really about. I wanted to ask you, if that's okay, After the Facts is a film, a short film about editing. Do you mind just talking about your relationship to editing and what making this film was meant to you and what gave you the spark to make it? Okay, so... One of the reasons I think that um, editing is so unrecognized for its significance in film is that it it's an instance of what I might call responsive creativity rather than generative creativity. Editing is one of the very few edit few areas in film where women are kind of well not really achieving parity but somewhere getting somewhere close like more like 20 to 30 percent of editors are women than two percent so film editing is um to me about it's a form of choreography and and of shaping movement and for me working responsively with existing moving images was very um embodied this is a bit of a money grab question but can you possibly name drop a few female editors that have edited some famous films and that people might not know about the unnamed faceless editors that deserve some credit well look i'm gonna um give you uh, two 
to, to two people I'd like to mention right off the top of my head, but one of them is not unnamed. It's Jill Bilcock, and there's a fantastic uh, feature film on the Sydney Film Festival about Jill Bilcock this year, so please look out for that. It's uh, directed by um, editor and director and producer Axel Drigor, and um, it's called Dancing the Invisible. Is she what are some of her films? What are some of her films? Um, she, Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, Strictly Ballroom, all of Baz Luhrmann's films. But she also, you know, she did Elizabeth, many films, many films. That one about the, the dressmaker? The dressmaker, yes. And so she's a very, in, very influential um, editor, in that, and she quite often can get things made. So, you know, getting Jill Bilcock on, she almost, she, she was associate producer on some of Baz Luhrmann's films because her influence is so so clear and, and strong. There is a man who has side-by-side women. And the second woman is? The second woman I'd like to mention is a woman named uh, Mathilde Bonnefoy. Um, she's uh, French and German. She cut Run, Lola, Run. Whoa, that's, that should be more well-known to people. Right. That's the, the editing movie. Yeah, the editing movie. And then, but then, you know, she's cut many other things as well, including many productions by Tom Teichfer, who uh, directed Run, Lola, Run. Um, but she, um, most her, one of her recent films was um, Citizen Four by uh, Laura Poitras. And, and as the editor, she was so such the central office of all of the secrets that were pouring in on the production of that film that she actually became the producer as well. Whoa. So. You have just blown my mind. Yeah. The, the Run Lola Run editor also did Citizen Four. It's right. A, but that makes sense as well. Like, all the scary documentaries are cut by people who make intense European fast-paced films, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but Citizen Four is, like, all about the editing. Yeah. When you were talking about any examples of women who thought they would get recognition when they haven't, my first thing that came to mind was when MIA was talking about the lack of recognition she was getting for her music, and she's a, very much a sample artist remixer. And uh, Björk, another mm-hmm. seminal artist, just said to her, take photos of yourself uh, at the production desks, at the mixing days, just take photos. So she did. So there are all these great photos of MIA at like a sound booth uh, and just uh, being like, yeah, that's right. Fuck you all. I'm doing this on my own. <laughs> but it's it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that what Björk was advising her was create documentary evidence, right? Because the way that we tell history is by reliance on what's in the archive rather than by insight into the the productions themselves. If we only take documentary evidence as our history, we have to understand that as a matter of law, men were the only signatories to documents for many, many eons of our history. I mean, it's really only in the 20th century, basically, that women have been allowed to sign documents that have legal um, standing. And, of course, the same is true for Indigenous people. Like, if we only look at the archives of the legal documents, we will only get a male history. When we first met, you were just so full of one-liners about your practice. (laughs) Is there anything that you can share with us that comes off the top of your head? Good editing is not invisible. Beautiful. You heard it here first. This has been Danger Film. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Karen Perlman, thank you so much. Thank you so much. There's a glimmer in the future of cinema. In the flicker of film. (laughs) In the flicker of film. (laughs) In the cutting room floor. (laughs) Until next episode, see you later. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. (laughs) 